Welcome to A Fostered Life, the show in which we explore the various facets of foster care through the voices of the many people who participate in the system. I'm your host, Christy Tennant Crispin, and this is episode 15. One of the things I've been so grateful for over the past few years is connecting with former foster youth who are willing and eager to share about their experiences in foster care in order to shine light on what it's like to be in foster care and to destigmatize what it means to be a foster kid. In 2018, I heard an interview on Oregon Public Radio with Cherie Renee, a woman who was in foster care until she aged out of the system. There's a link to that interview in the show notes for this episode. Today, Cherie is a blogger who describes herself as a child abuse survivor and former foster child who's using her life as an inspiration to others. I reached out to Cherie after I heard her interview, and we've stayed in touch via social media since then. You can find links to Cherie's blog and Instagram account in the show notes below. I was so glad to connect with Cherie by phone recently, and I'm thrilled that she agreed to be my guest on this podcast. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. I appreciate so much you taking time and, um, yeah, just excited to share some of your story with, with my listeners. So, um, of course, I'm excited. Thank you. I appreciate you even shedding light on any of this for, you know, the foster kids and the foster parents. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, as a foster parent, I have come to learn that, um, I learned more from talking to, you know, former foster youth and people who lived on the other side of it, you know, I feel like it's the thing that has really made the difference in how I am able to, you know, serve my kids and just love them and see them and everything. So I appreciate that Mm -hmm. so much. Um, I always start my interviews by asking the same question. So I would love to ask you, um, when did your life first intersect with the foster care system? That is a good question. I would say officially when I was 11, Going on 12, that's when I was placed in my first foster home. But I know that um, the state DHS knew about me as, like, a, like an infant. But I was placed in my first foster home after the abuse came out from my aunt when I was 11, almost 12. Wow. And so your journey, though, from, um, I guess, if we were talking about foster care and uh, kinship care, it would be a different answer, right? Because you... Correct. Yeah. So what was your kind of, like, who parented you from the time you were born until you were 11? So I was born to a teenage mother who I didn't find out until about five years ago was a drug addict. Mm -hmm. Um, I then was raised with her until I was about four or five. It's a little kind of fuzzy, like, what the actual time frame was, but I was with my grandma, so her mother a lot, like even before four or five, like I was, she babysat me. Um, I stayed with her a lot, um, but I officially moved in with her when I was about four or five and I stayed with her until I was seven. And then at seven, she actually passed away from ovarian cancer. Hmm. And then at seven, I moved in with my aunt and uncle. So my mother's brother and sister-in-law very key point there, sister-in-law. Um, and then my aunt wound up, abu- wound up abusing me for about four years of my life. So I was about 11, almost 12. Um, and that's when I officially went into foster care. Yeah. I went to one home just for the night, like a group home. Mm-hmm. And then I moved, I like went back to my own 
school. Um, my aunt was arrested. She was taken away. And then for a couple months, I was with my uncle. I did a two-week stint with my best friend at the time and her family. Um, and then that's when I went to, luckily, the foster parents that I have now. I mean, I'm 32, so I'm not. I'm out of my own, but yeah, they're my mom and dad now. Yes, yes. And this is one of the things, like, I just, there are so many things I want to kind of unpack or just sort of, you know, listen to you talk about because you're, (laughs) um, you have, I can't even remember when I first crossed your story, but I think it might have been an interview you did on Oregon Public Radio. Might that have been right? Um, I remember correctly. I think that's kind of when we connected on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, yeah. and I sort of reached out. And, and I just, I think um, the thing I love so much about your story from what I've seen anyway, we've never met in person before, but um, is that you you are cultivating this beautiful life and you, you really are like living this life. You're living life out loud. You it just, it's beautiful. And you're very open about your history and about what has gotten you to this point and the ups and the downs and, you know, and everything that you've been through. And I guess one of the questions that I have is um, what gave you the courage or the, the wherewithal to want to share your story so boldly and so openly? I believe it's because growing up, like even after I moved in with my foster parents and after I moved to LA out of home, you know, I went to college down here. Um, so many people were just like, wait, what? You were a foster child. And there's just no look to it. I think that there's such a bad stigma with foster kids that they don't have certain things or they act a certain way or they behave a certain way or they have a certain reputation. And so many times I got the, wait, you're a foster child. And I was like, well, yeah, I, that's, that's where that's where I'm from. And I just got to the point where I realized that, you know, the cliche term is, you know, knowledge is power. And I so believe that. And I don't think any cycle can be broken unless you fully accept what has happened and share that and learn from it. Yeah. So the more that I kept getting that question, that reaction, I was like, I shouldn't be afraid to share this because it's a big part of where I come from and who I am. And I think that the more I share it, it's, it helps other people. And I think they realize, oh, well, you, you know, that cliche again of, oh, well, you don't have that same reputation or, you know, it's like changing that narrative. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think stories are so powerful. And like you said, the statistics and the stigmas that follow a lot of youth who are in foster care kind of, I mean, it it just, it's like punching them while they're already down. Like they didn't choose Mm -hmm. any of this. None of this is their fault. And let's lay some stigmas on top to really shame them so that they really can't pick back up, you know? Exactly. Uh, Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I just love about you know, you are, um, you have a beautiful blog and you're a wonderful writer as well. And you've written about this, but also other things. And so it's sort of like just, it's woven into the fabric of your story. Um, you were 11 years old. You had already been moved several times. You had lost your beloved grandmother, who is your hero from everything I've seen uh, online. Um, oh, yes. I think my only sanity of my first 
12 years of my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How amazing that you had her and how tragic that she left way too quickly. Um, and then you found yourself driving up a winding driveway to a beautiful home <laughs> to some strangers and they became very important in your life. But there was that day that they were strangers to you. What was that like for you that first day when you met um, mom and dad? So I grew, so my whole growing up, I've always lived like more rural. I've never been in the city until I moved to Los Angeles. Um, so driving up, I was like, okay, this is fun. This is normal, quote unquote. Like this won't seem too weird to me. Um, but on my drive up, I knew it was a Friday. I knew that I was going to spend one evening with them the following Friday. And I knew the Friday after that, so two weeks from that drive up, I was moving in with them. So in my head, I kind of was like, does it really matter what happens today? Because I know I'm moving in with them in two weeks. But I think a part of me just thought it was another adventure. Like you said, I, I've moved so many times. I currently, where I am now, I've lived in LA at the same apartment for six and a half years, and it's the longest place I've ever lived. Wow. I've always, I've moved a lot. Right. Um, so for me, I think it was just, nope, here's another move. Here's another adventure. I was excited, anxious. Uh, I think it was really high strung. Um, how I even moved in with my foster parents. So Francis and Phil, mom and dad, mm-hmm. um, my foster mom, so Frances, was a uh, learning disabled uh, in high school. She worked with kids who had learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. So she kind of already had the training to be able to handle outbursts or anything that was going on. But she happened to foster one of her kids who was in an emergency. Um, they didn't have any kids of their own, decided to never have any kids of their own. Um, that one foster placement didn't go well. It was actually very, um, it, is, it didn't go well for them. Yeah. Um, so my foster, my, um, I'm sorry, my caseworker at the time knew Francis because of that and called my dad, so called Philip, who if anybody knows my dad, is he's this old school Italian, first generation here, but um, just kind of, he didn't want kids. And somehow my caseworker called him and he was like, sure, we'll give it a try. Like my mom was shocked. I'm mm-hmm. still shocked. Yeah. I mean, I've lived with him for 20 plus years and I'm still shocked that he said yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, when I met them, like that first day I met them, I guess when I left and I always joke with him about this, it, it doesn't hurt me at all when I hear this, but I guess he turned to Francis, my mom and was like, well, are you sure we want to do this? And she was like, well, we can't return her. She's not a couch, which is true. Like that, I think that happens to a lot where kids, it doesn't like, it doesn't go well. So they're like, well, I'm not going to try, or I'm not going to even figure out what's going on to help this kid. They're like, well, this just isn't working. They get rid, you know, don't get rid of the kid. Mm-hmm. They kept me. Like mm-hmm. they, Francis was like, no, well, we're not returning her. We're, she's here. She's moving in in two weeks. So yeah, I, I mean, I moved in. <laughs> they, um, they honored my wishes. I really, really wanted to go to this outdoor school camp that we had at my school that I was at before I moved in with them. And everybody honored my wishes, so I was able to go. And then on April 2nd, I moved in with them. So, Wow. It was wonderful. That's amazing. <laughs> and so you moved in with them. Now, okay, so... Um... I always like so I've seen pictures of you and your and your foster parents online and and they look like such lovely people and I think to myself um they must have handled everything that you threw at them so well because I 
I, you know, we've had our share of some challenges. What were some of the challenges that you came with early on? If you're willing to share, I mean, some of the things that you, you know, might have brought into their home and how did they respond? I mean, it makes a lot more sense now that I know that Frances was a special ed teacher because she had some skills and some tools. Um, I will tell you that when I became a foster parent, I had zero skills, (laughs) zero tools. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the stuff that we ended up just facing, I had to kind of, you know, learn with my child. I joke with my oldest son. I say, you were like my my teacher, my my learning coach, because I didn't know. Um, But what were some of those challenges early on and sort of how did that, how did they handle them? Um, so I would say I, I wasn't a problem child and, and we just, we actually just had this conversation over our anniversary in April. Mm-hmm. I wasn't one of those kids that I was like, just defiant and didn't want to like listen to them. Like I always want, I'm a pleaser. I mean, I'm, I've, I've always wanted to make other people happy. It's just who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know so I had my 12th birthday about two months after I moved in, two and a half months after I moved in, and my biological father actually found me. I think he must have been still paying child support or the state reached out to him since I was going into foster care. My mother still couldn't, my biological mother still couldn't um, take care of me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still fuzzy on what that is and only because he... And I were in contact, and then he disappeared again for the second time in my life. And I pretty much was like, you're done. I'm not ever talking to you again. Um, But shortly after that, um, so it was my freshman year of high school, I started cutting on myself. Uh I actually had, while I was in church, I kept hearing my aunt's voice. Like, quite literally, like, I hear your voice right now. I would Mm -hmm. hear her talking. Mm -hmm. And I soon learned that I was having flashbacks and Mm -hmm. stuff was starting to bubble up for me. Um, So I had started cutting on myself. And then I had a bad dream, a nightmare, where I was raped again. And Mm -hmm. in previous time, when I lived with my mother, I had been sexually assaulted and raped. Um. And I had that dream, and I woke up sweating, physical pain. I had no idea what was going on, and I was like, wow, I'm not safe in this world, and I'm not safe in my own dreams. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, I said something to Frances. I don't know what possessed me to. Um, I just turned to her, and I said, please watch me. Like, I didn't even tell her anything that happened. I just said, I'm scared. Please watch me. She immediately took me to the emergency room to speak with a nurse. I told them what happened. The nurse gave me, like, a horse tranquilizer pill. She's like, this will make you sleep. You won't wake up on it. You're going to be okay. I wound up waking up on it. Um, our minds are so incredibly powerful, but oh. I, from there, kind of just, I would yell and scream and take things out on Francis. And I think the reason why I did was because I'd always had had a mother figure in my life. I had my mother, she was always there. And then I had her mom, my grandma. Mm-hmm. Um, I had my aunt. So they, those were all like my main caretakers. And yep. so my aunt abused me, my mother not taking care of me. So when, Fr- when Francis was in my life and taking care of me, and I finally felt safe, because that's what was going on. I felt safe. Everything, and I was 14, 15, everything just started bubbling up. And I just 
took everything out on her. Like yeah. I like I don't, I mean I think that I had probably yelled at my dad sometimes too, Philip. Um, but most of it was projected to her, and it had nothing to do with her. She, and she knows that. And they tried all through freshman year, and then come the summer of my soft. This was the summer right before sophomore year. They were like we can't physically do anything for you. You need help. And something with the state, and because I was a ward of the state, they couldn't technically do anything. Um, I went into another foster home so that I could try to go get treatment. Hmm. But even while I was in a different foster home, Francis and Philip came and saw me. Yeah. They never once left my side. And I think that is the biggest thing for me that was my, like the biggest support for me was to see that I was still loved. Like yeah. My mother was an addict and she wasn't around. My grandma passed away. And while I know now it wasn't her fault, when you're seven, it's a little hard to understand why she's not there anymore. Oh, absolutely. Um, my aunt had abused me. So, like, I had never had anyone just love me and take care of me, even when things were rough. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to that foster care. Um, I kind of did school, but not really. And then there was this idea to put me back in with my mother. So we went all the way down to Coos Bay. Um, which is like five hours from where I lived. Mm-hmm. And I went to a shelter, like a youth shelter. Mm-hmm. And I was running away. I was throwing glass to cut myself. I was defiant to all, anyone that was like trying to help me. Um, so then I was taken from there up to an evaluation center up in um, Lake Oswego. Mm-hmm. called Christie School. I don't think it's still technically around. I think they might have the building, but I'm not sure if it's still in service. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was very much like being in jail, like JDH. Like I had plexiglasses, windows, mm-hmm. uh, the doors they had to unlock, and I would go in, and like I couldn't come out on my own. Like I had to knock for someone to come get me. We had like certain, we had very, very structure, which that's what I needed. Mm-hmm. A lot of kids tend to resist it i had always knew that i wanted help that was the one thing i knew like when i told francis like please watch me like i knew that something was wrong i just didn't know what it was yeah so i was resistant but i knew that i didn't want to be scared i knew i didn't want to be cutting on myself i knew that i didn't want to have these angry sad scared feelings so at christie school um i was there for three months i was when i first came in they were like oh you know drug and alcohol abuse hmm. which to this day, I still have never done a drug. Oh. I think that's the other, you know, yeah. stipulation that or stigma that foster kids get is that they are into all these things, and mm-hmm. it was like I've never even seen it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um. But and so I went there, and then after that, I went into residential care. So I live in residential care, but um, they knew that they gave me a five-month timeline, which I guess they don't normally do, but. Every single point of this, my parents were there. France and Philip came. They drove down to Coos Bay for Christmas, which was before I became a Jew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so they went down for Christmas. They mm-hmm. actually brought both their dogs. Uh, something happened to the car engine, so they had to, like, get it towed. Like, they really put in all the work and the patience and the love. Like, when I went to Christie school, they came. Um, when I was at residential, they would come to my counseling sessions with me. Uh, when I finally left residential, I started school back on time. So I essentially missed most of my sophomore year, but I started junior year on time. Frances being a, a teacher at my high school, she actually was able to get me the classes I needed. Um, and I continued therapy and they actually were able because 
a lot of people in general, this is even if you've not had any kind of trauma growing up, it's hard to connect with someone in therapy. Like you have to yeah. find someone that you can really connect with and you yes. trust and that you mm-hmm. feel like you're benefiting from. Mm-hmm. And I have three of those in my entire life. And the woman that I saw there, Tina, was one of them. So we, they don't normally do this, but they were like, we'll let you do outpatient and come up and here and see her. And so once a week, my parents were driving me up to Portland, which was mm-hmm. an hour away, mm-hmm. to go see this woman. So I threw a lot at them, but they never left and haven't left and are still here. You know, that's the thing. I, I really hope foster parents who are hearing this hear this message because um, there is such incredible power in showing up. I mean, showing up when your child is in treatment, showing up if they are in, you know, um, juvenile detention or whatever. I have another friend whose foster teen um, was in juvie, you know, within a couple weeks of being placed with her. And she said, when I showed up at juvie, she was so surprised I was there. And when I told her, when you get out of here, you're coming back to my house. She was so surprised because she had had so many foster parents who that was the point at which they, (laughs) they abandoned ship, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. So that that idea, that power of just showing up and continuing to be there and recognizing we aren't capable right now of being everything she needs. She needs more help and there's no shame in getting her more help and there's no shame for you in needing to get some help and treatment, you know, to go into a facility, but that they continued to be there. I just think that's so powerful and well done to them. And, um, you know, I'm so glad that they did because they, they would have missed out on such a gift of relationship <laughs> with you if they hadn't done that, you know, so. And I, I think, I, I know that I put in the work to get here, but I also, it's, it's I really owe them everything and I'm so thankful and I love them so, so much that like if they hadn't given me that love and that support and that, that time yeah. to get to the, be this person that I am, mm-hmm. like who knows where I would have been. Yeah. And I can tell you from, from personal experience that if they were sitting here, they would say, we are the ones who got the gift. We are the lucky ones. <laughs> we are the lucky ones. Cause I, you know, a lot of times people say about foster parents, you know, I mean, and this is one of the things I wish people would stop saying, they'll say things like, you know, your kids are so lucky. And I look at them and I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? With everything my kids have been through, they're not the lucky ones. I'm the lucky one because I have them, you know, mm-hmm. in my life. Um, so, um, so I wanted to dig into another question that I have for you. And, and I confess this is kind of a personal one for me because we have a teenager who's with us. Mm-hmm. And um, we are looking at the question of adoption and, and we're all in and she's not yet. So I would love to ask you, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit, why didn't you ever get adopted? Because I, I, from what I gather, they would have adopted you. Am I right about that? They, yes, they offered, I think a couple, I think it was a couple years in, and I just said no. I was like, I, at this point, I mean, I lived with my mother. My dad had walked out on me twice. I lived with my grandma. I lived with my aunt and uncle. I was like, you guys are going to leave. Mm-hmm. Like, I just always fully believe that. And I think the final step of actually like knowing that they're here and that they love me and they're not going anywhere after 20 plus years, it would probably be that. But when they asked me, like, which was like, you know, I think it was 
13, maybe 14. Maybe it was right away even. Um, the time is a little fuzzy, but I was just like, no. And they never pushed it. They didn't say, well, this is what we want. Like, mm-hmm. It was never about them. It was just like, well, we're here, so this will be permanent foster care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And are you? do you feel like that was the right move for you as you look back on it? Um... I don't know if this is going to sound bad. This is, I mean, we've talked, Francis and Philip and I, we've talked about this. Um, I don't think it was wrong. I don't think there was a, it was a bad choice. It actually wound up, because I did start school. I started college up in Portland. I went to University of Portland for my first year and a half. Mm-hmm. And I wound up getting a little bit more um, help financially because I was still an independent of the, mm-hmm. of the word of the state. I was an independent. Mm-hmm. So yep. it, it helped me in that sense. Sure. Um I wouldn't say that it hindered or helped me anywhere else, mm-hmm. I don't think, mm-hmm. not that I can think of anyways right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm just, the re- I think part of the reason I'm asking is because I am so encouraged by the story that even though you didn't get adopted, they're still very much in your life. And I think that, you know, for, for foster parents listening and thinking to themselves, you know, um, we we want to give this person a forever home and that means adoption right but the truth mm-hmm. of the matter is that not necessarily i mean you can be a forever yeah. family even if you never get adopted or you know pursue adoption and so i think that that's just you know i'm inspired by that and you know i i think it um you know, you, we see it from our perspective as parents and as wanting to give, you know, we want to give the world to our kids. And uh, and yet at the same time, we have to recognize that our kids come with their stories and their lens through which they see all of these things, including commitment and relationships. Um, so, yeah, it actually yeah, makes, I don't makes think, sense. I think I started calling them mom and dad. I've been in L.A. for almost 13 years, probably eight or nine years ago I started calling them mom and dad mm-hmm. um but they've always like they've always like when I go home for the holidays or if I go visit or like if I go up to Oregon if I say I'm going home I'm always going to them yeah. um they were just here not over Thanksgiving but the weekend before they stayed in my apartment and they slept in my bed mm-hmm. like we did everything together so yeah. it's very much it just doesn't have that that official title I guess sure but they are very much my parents and it's yeah. that forever home and mm-hmm. you know after our anniversary I've thought about it more I thought about more like well what does this mean um like getting older mm-hmm. but we haven't discussed it too much about mm-hmm. adoption mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and okay so since you are fairly public very public I would say about your story <laughs> their story has become public too. How have they handled having their role in your life known so publicly? <laughs> uh, they're good sports. They, my, my mom is definitely a, a little bit more private, not necessarily private, but like she doesn't love like socializing and going to parties or the pictures or all that, but mm-hmm. she knows that it's important to me. They both do. They both yeah she sense that it's important to me and that it's important to share the story. So yeah. whatever I've asked for them, um, I've done a few interviews with them, which interviewing is actually very hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Finding <laughs> the right questions and that to, to keep the flow going, I found very difficult. Yeah. Um, but I've done, I think, three interviews with them for about like kind of sharing our story together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they were nervous about that, but they're happy to do it because they want to share their story too. Like they want me to share my story and they want, like, I, it, it, 
I have a different story from most. Like I haven't gone through 13 or 12 different foster homes. I, I like haven't done drugs or alcohol. I haven't, I, there's a lot that I haven't done and I have done. And I think that they want me to share that story. And so are happy to do yeah. whatever it is to share as well. Right. Well, I know you're passionate about sharing your foster care story, but what are some of the other things that you're passionate about? Because I love following you on Instagram, and I know that there are a lot of other things that you're, you're kind of lifestyle branded kind of thing. What are the things that, that you are excited about in life? Oh, I have a little dog who is my everything. Um, I've had him for eight years, eight and a half years, which I got him and... I, this woman had actually adopted nine dogs because they were being euthanized and he was one of them. And so I offered to help because she needed fosters. So I fostered a dog for two weeks. Mm -hmm. It was only two weeks, but it, it hurt my heart so much that like when I gave him up to give, go to his actual forever home, I was bawling. I was absolutely like, I know what this feels like. Like the person that was taking him away from me was like, are you okay? (laughs) (laughs) So I've always had like a a passion and love for animals. Um, My part of, me getting out of the hellish of a year that I had, um, my parents actually got me a horse, and mm. it was kind of mine to kind of figure and do, you know, I had to figure out and do everything on my own. I mean, they helped me, but mm. it was my project. Um, I, let's see, I converted to Judaism five years ago. Mm-hmm. I have, was an honorary Jew for that like probably five years before that. And so being in the community, which is very, very different nowadays as it was back then, like I don't go to synagogue on the weekends. I go for the high holidays, but I don't go on um, Friday night or Saturday, but I do go to any of the events that we have, like Hanukkah's coming up. I host a lot. Mm-hmm. And for me, I host a lot of Shabbats and it's so personal and so like, it reminds me of my grandma. And she, because all of our holidays were at her place. Any dinners, like, she'd always have all of us, because she had four kids. And so yeah. the four kids, almost all of them had, each had two kids, except for my mother um, and one of the uncles. So there was five grandkids. Um, so it was always, like, a bustling house, and she was always having people over, and that was, like, the thing that she did. Mm-hmm. She also worked, too, which was very different for that time. Yeah. Um, but for me, hosting is just, like, I love it. I love bringing people together, and it's as much as I don't actually get to interact with a lot of people when I'm hosting, mm-hmm. I love seeing my friends connect and make their own friendships, which yeah. is really important to me. Right. Uh, I, in the last year and a half, have really gotten into my health, and not just physically, but I've been meditating every day. It fluctuates. There's weeks where I won't meditate, and then, you know, I'll get back into it. But I found that it's been very helpful especially as I write more Mm -hmm. and I've had a little bit of a hiatus because I actually want to write a book and I'm trying to figure out how to do that Mm. um so I've learned that the reactions that I get from you know some of my family members or just people in general it's helped me to kind of realize that maybe some people are projecting Mm -hmm. or it's it it has nothing to do with me and it's more about them yeah um yeah so yeah yeah when you're public like that and i i mean i experienced a little bit of this too you you are out there with a story you're wanting to serve and encourage and inspire 
and fill the world with goodness, there are always, always going to be haters. <laughs> you have to develop this mm -hmm. thick skin, right? To be able to Very go. Thick skin. Yeah, yeah. And it's and like. And also realizing uh, that they don't necessarily have all of your information and you don't necessarily have all their information. Yes. So it's kind of like people get defensive when it's like, well, I didn't know that or you don't know this or it's just kind of like it's everyone's perspective and it's it gets a little hard yeah it, it gets a little hard and the things that can be said are have been very hurtful mm -hmm. from my own family members so mm -hmm. it's a, it it is what it is and I've learned to just breathe in breathe yeah. it out yeah. they're entitled to how they feel if I can talk it out with them then that's great mm -hmm. there's other times where I, I there's time there's been times where I literally have to emotionally disconnect right yeah yeah you can only control what you can control right and and that's exactly. your part in it all wow well i have to tell you i love speaking with you i love following you online i just you do fill my day with joy when i see your pictures and i just love um yeah connecting with you and we're on facebook together too so i know you know you know you've chimed in on some of my family posts and things too so it's just been really great to talk with you voice to voice and i think what you're doing is is wonderful i appreciate it so much and um we will be looking with with um, eagerness for your book when that comes out. I hope. I hope that. Uh, I hope you can dig in and get that done because I know it's challenging. But I think. I think you're right. You do have a book in you, um, at least one. So, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking your time to even do this, and I love the work that you're doing. And I'm so grateful that you're putting light out onto this topic and on for foster parents and i you know thank you <laughs> thank uh, you mutual admiration society right here we've got so <laughs> well if anyone who's listening wants to learn more about sheree's story and just to sort of connect with her and follow her beautiful life on instagram um you can go to sheriereenee.com i will link it in the show notes below and um again thank you so much and i hope you have a great rest of the week thank you you too You've been listening to my conversation with blogger Cherie Renee. To follow Cherie and learn more about her remarkable story, go to cherierenee.com, which is linked in the show notes. Be sure to subscribe to A Fostered Life Podcast so you don't miss a single episode. And if you're enjoying this resource, please consider becoming a patron of A Fostered Life on Patreon. To learn more about how to pledge as little as $1 a month to support this podcast, as well as the YouTube channel and blog, please go to patreon.com slash a fostered life. For more information and resources for foster parents, please visit a where you'll find blog posts, recommended reading, YouTube videos, and social media links, all designed to help foster parents feel more equipped for their foster care journey. It's my prayer that no foster parent ever feels like they're going at it alone. If you're a foster parent who's feeling like you're out there on your own, consider joining The Flourishing Foster Parent, a community designed to encourage, equip, and connect foster parents. You can find info on The Flourishing Foster Parent at afosteredlife.com FFP. One more thing. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to rate A Fostered Life on iTunes. It would help me out so much. Thanks for listening, and thanks for caring about foster care.